Good morning, noon, or night, wherever and whenever you're listening. You're listening to The Shift. I am your host, Doug McKenty. This is episode 31 of The Shift. It's being recorded on March 30th, 2018. If you like what you're listening to, please consider becoming a patron of the show. That's patreon.com backslash the shift. For my news feed and more information about the program, join, uh, join us on Facebook at The Shift with Doug McKenty. Join the conversation on Twitter at McKenty, And for my archives and more information, check out my website at www.theshiftnow.com. My guest on the program today is actor, podcaster, philosopher, and self-proclaimed crypto-savage Vin Armani. Though he is perhaps best known for playing himself in the hit Showtime series Gigolo, Finn is jack-of-all-trades when it comes to audio and video production. He has been involved in the creation of multiple online radio stations, as well as producing a full-length feature film titled Expressway to Your Skull. Vin is the author of two books, a biography called Tao of Gigolo, as well as the more recent philosophical treatise Self-Ownership, a commentary on the nature of the origin of human freedom and morality through the concept of ownership. In addition to this already extensive skill set, Finn has, um, is a self-taught computer coder and has become deeply involved in the creation and dissemination of blockchain technology. He uses this knowledge to participate in and advance the use of cryptocurrencies, most recently helping to launch Cointext, a currency transfer service which allows users to send and receive cryptocurrency through a simple text message. In self-ownership, Vin describes how humanity is experiencing a massive shift away from a centralized authority, protecting property rights through a monopoly on violence, to a decentralized system using blockchain technology in order to prove a claim on a property right. According to Vin, this revolution is being manifested by those unafraid to transcend our current cultural boundaries, enter the wilderness of the unknown, and bring back the concepts and ideas that will be used to create the new system. Stay tuned to discover how these crypto savages are working right now to herald the dawn of a new age. Find out more about Vin's work by checking out his podcast, The Vin Armani Show. And thank you, Vin, for agreeing to be on the show. Wow, what a great intro! Thank you for thank you for that intro. Obviously, you took you took some time uh, and uh, you captured it very very well. Thank you. I'm flattered. Yeah, I've got to say, of all the people that I've had on the show right now, the kind of work that you're doing really represents what I consider the shift. And I thank everybody that comes on the show for helping to make the shift, not just making my show, but what's really going on here. I feel very strongly, as I know you do, that we are in the middle of a a very big cultural change. Um, It was really great to read your book, Self-Ownership, and find out how eloquently you were able to describe what's going on. Um, I mean, while... The philosophical concepts were, you know, were were complex. Uh, I really uh, admire the way that you put them together in such a way as to describe the importance of the concept of ownership, and then lead us through the history of that concept and the growth and development in our culture and how it's that that concept has been protected by various entities, what its function is, uh, and then getting into what's happening in terms of blockchain technology. Um, that is going to create really this massive shift that we're talking about. So, uh, you know, I really recommend it for people to understand what's going on in the world today. And I, I hope that we can all be as optimistic as, as I think you are about where this change is taking us. <laughs> I th- well, I, I think that, uh, is it optimism? That's uh, I, I don't, I don't know if it's, if it's that term, uh, if that, that, that term is, is appropriate, but I think that at any given time, 
you know, where you are is where you are. And I think that we can all look back with some perspective and, and you know, you could see the glass half full or the glass empty. But at the at the end of the day, I think humanity will survive. Mm-hmm. And I think that, uh, you know, the, the unique aspect of our species is that we're able to learn however slowly – uh, and uh, however, however, uh, you know, haltingly, we're eventually able to learn from the mistakes of the past if we can just keep that knowledge uh, flowing and if we can just keep it passed on to the next generation and, and not forget about the mistakes that we made in the past and, and, to, and to also celebrate our triumphs. I think that that's something that our culture right now, I think it's an unfortunate aspect uh, of the, the popular culture is to is that there's a great forgetting happening, but I think at the same time, what's wonderful is there's also a great remembering, uh, although albeit much smaller, but super powerful. Mm. And and obviously the the technology even that we're using right now is enabling that remembering. So so much of the, of the work, particularly in self ownership, I really feel was. Um, well, I, I really feel that it was revealed knowledge more than anything, you know, and so much of it was remembering things and, and trying to articulate ideas that our culture has been embodying for a long time. I don't think that I'm alone in doing that right now. I mean, you're doing it. You're doing it as well and, mm-hmm. and others. And I, I really appreciate that fact. And so. So, yeah, I think that, that that in that way, I'm optimistic that I think that we ha- there's great hope and a great chance for us to, uh, to pick up. Uh, and to do a new version of this thing but there's also a very good chance that that what ends up happening is that we uh, we have to uh, that it all breaks down and that we have to start all over again so you know it's just whichever way we want to go with this thing it is pretty amazing actually i mean a part of making the shift I, you discussed some of this and, and I, I didn't mention this in the intro but in the ascendant project which is a video hmm. series that you've done on youtube um, that when these changes happen, there's a certain amount of destructive force that goes on, and it really is up to those of us who are making these choices right now today to make sure that it doesn't get over the top and become too destructive, and we're able to rein in some of these forces, especially as the old power structure dies out and the new power structure starts to to come in. Uh, you know, let's just hope that we can do this in a way that does maintain the, the social order throughout the transition. Um, yeah, that's I mean, that's ultimately that's the choice. And I mean, I think it's uh, I think it's some ways it's dangerous. You know, I, I like the idea of the shift. Right. I like this idea and I, I use this concept as well. Mm-hmm. I also like the, the idea of, you know, as you look back into history, you can't help but see that history does repeat itself and that we are in cycles. And I think that every single time cultural sh- this cultural shift has happened. And the culture has acknowledged that it's a, a re-manifestation of the cycle, which I think happened in the Renaissance, and I think, that, and I believe that it happened in the Enlightenment. When that happens, we get a lot. We, of course, there's always negativity, but you get it a lot of positivity. Every single time that these cultural shifts have happened, and I think this happened in the Dark Ages, and I think that this also happened in the early 20th century, and somehow, as a culture, people look and see, oh, this is something new. This is not a, a, a replay of something in the past. Mm. That means when they say it's something new, they, don't, they looked for new things, and they don't say, oh, well, if this is a, a repeat, maybe we cannot do the mistakes that happened last time. And so I think that when we, we say that something new is coming, like, yes, it's new and that in some ways it's always new, but I think to acknowledge that there's nothing new under the sun – 
and that we're moving in a cycle and that we're having a shift from one paradigm to another paradigm, but that's happened before. Mm-hmm. I think that that's an important perspective to carry through because then you say, okay, mistakes have been made before. True wisdom, true wisdom, be that as an individual or as a culture, is, is not uh, being super intelligent or super gifted at something, but it's not repeating the mistakes that you've already made. That's wisdom. Yeah, absolutely. Um, one of the things that we discussed before uh, before the interview in our emails was talking about a cyclical versus linear concepts of history. Right. And I have always been attracted actually to the idea of the spiral. Like we are, I, I think it's oversimplifying uh, things to just uh, get into that a real linear feeling of history that we're always progressing. But then it's not just a circle because as on every right. step of the way, we can look at the past and we can, right. and we we're growing off of that foundation. So so I think that consciousness or culture or whatever this thing is that we're here being involved with right now uh, is something that happens in this kind of spiral pattern. And I really appreciate that that metaphor for what's happening. I think that's a great I think that's a great visualization, actually. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I think it's uh, in many ways, it's a lot more accurate than looking at it as this this unbroken circle because it's certainly not it is more like that helix right and the dna and For so sure. you know you see the the metaphorical repeated in the because the dna is that encoding it is that is what we cycle through right right but it's always changing and it's always evolving and so you know it's conservative over time and you do go through these cycles but it is that helix isn't it and so mm-hmm. that I, I i resonate that resonates with me incredibly yeah i i love that i love that nice uh, before we get started, I wanted to just, I saw in your bio at the very end of the book, I was like, how in the hell does this guy know all this stuff? And, and, and then I saw in your bio that you studied philosophy at Howard University. I did. So I, uh, I also have a philosophy. I studied philosophy at Trinity down in Texas, okay. Trinity University. So it was yep. kind of, I was like, okay, you know, when, when you start quoting John Locke, I'm like, this is not the, you know... This is, um, you know, this is, you know, going da- back to the primary source material is really important, and it was nice to see. It was refreshing to see someone uh, that was willing to do that when, especially, I think, when describing uh, this concept of ownership and self-ownership, which I, for a long time, like you described in the book, have felt, you know, as John Locke describes this, um, this is a, it has its foundations in natural law, sure. uh, and then. Um, as we progress, this concept of self-ownership becomes the foundation of, you know, all of our other human rights. Uh, right. I, I, it describes, although, you know, perhaps some some would disagree with this, and we can discuss this a little bit, how the concept, I think, of property rights has been perverted or is misunderstood. Um, but sure. then a, as it evolves, uh, and how you discuss in the book that it uh, it uh, it is actually the foundation then of... of of human morality uh, of sure. the difference between how do we know the difference between good and evil? You know, this was a great, I, I was thinking as I started the book, the first couple of chapters, especially you start with John Locke, you, you never mentioned Adam Smith, but in the wealth of nations, I mean, Adam Smith was a, sure. a philosopher of ethics and he wrote that Absolutely. book, not really thinking about economics, but asking what creates the best person. And he said, well, That's this, right. this creates the best kind of human, you know, this right. helps us to define the good. Um, so will you go into that? You know, well, I mean, why did you write this book? What was important about this and then discussing ownership on this level? So the, my primary purpose of starting to explore this idea was that, you know, I had been exploring 
economics for a very, very long time. Mm -hmm. And then I started doing my show and started actually interacting a lot more with people in the economics sphere and the the combination of economics and politics and particularly when you're talking about a uh, voluntarism or people going after a stateless society we're talking about particularly austrian economics so, so uh mises rothbard hayek mm-hmm. and as i explored their work even more i mean i had ran across it over the years and certainly understood the basic concepts but as i really dug into it to try to to try to best be able to articulate some of the thoughts that I was having and I and I was seeing okay has this been articulated in a way that I can draw upon I really just noticed that I had found something that was missing and what was missing in all of this work was certainly so much of it is about property rights and so much of it is about uh, an examination and an exploration of the ideas of property but the starting point was always the first principle was always well, what is property? Property is that which is owned and or can be disposed of at the whim of the owner, right? This is the basic idea of what is property, mm-hmm. even even with Locke. But the problem was I never saw ownership itself explored and defined. And I thought, well, that's how property rights can be perverted because if we don't if we don't both share the same definition – of what is ownership. And if I can control the definition of ownership itself, particularly laying out the boundaries of what can and cannot be owned, mm-hmm. that was the most important thing. And as I started to, to dive into it, and I deal with this in the book, I, I found that, wow, there are some things that the state claims ownership to two very very important ones particularly for us in our modern age would be electromagnetic spectrum which most people don't realize encompasses everything from the colors that you see to radio waves x x rays gamma rays uh, wi-fi uh, you know your fm radio satellite signals all of that Well, governments around the world have claimed ownership clearly of that because Mm -hmm. they issue licenses. They issue licenses uh, for you to do your Wi-Fi, for cell phones, for radio broadcasts. Everybody involved in that has to be authorized and okayed by the FCC uh, in America and other uh, agencies around the world. And so that says, well, this is a claim being made on that. And the other one that is almost exactly the same is intellectual property. Yeah. And and so I started to look and see that, wow, what's really happening here, if we want to move in a way where we could potentially have a stateless society, one of the most important things that we're going to have to deal with is we're going to have to settle ownership claims. 99.9% of the violence in the world that uh, animals participate in that is not that is inter intra species violence, right? So not predation, not a, a wolf going after a, a deer or something like that. Not uh, not necessarily defending themselves from another, but so much of it intra species and certainly within our own species is about property claims. Mm-hmm. It's about who owns what. Almost every war is about that. You look at almost every conflict between ethnic groups, between individuals. You go to the courts. You see what are they arbitrating when it's a civil matter. Who owns what? Ownership claims. Yeah. This is, this is all the conflict, 
right? This is all the conflict. And so as I start out in the book is the idea that, you know, what, what I want and my reason for uh, being an anarchist, if you want to say that, a voluntarist certainly, but preferring a stateless society and my problem with the state as d- defined by Weber as the, the group of people who claim a monopoly on legitimate violence in a given geographical area. My problem with that whole idea uh, is that it's the violence. And it, violence, especially state violence, but violence in general, creates suffering. And I think that anybody could agree that living a life that is more free of violence as opposed to that same life lived with much more violence right. uh, it's preferable to have the least violent life. I think most people can agree the least amount of violence hitting you is the key, mm-hmm. which would say that the, the, a society which was the best at being able to solve the maximum number of property claims without the institution of violence. So, And that means without the arbitration of the state, which is an instrument of violence. The society, a society that was able to do that effectively through technological means and through organizational means is going to naturally be the society that's the least violent. I truly believe that all of history shows that those societies that, are, that have the least violence that people uh, encounter on the day-to-day basis have the least amount of risk and the most benefit in terms of prosperity. I think that that's how people are raised out of poverty. You will see that the wealthier a society is, it tends to be the le- less violent a society is, and vice versa. Mm-hmm. And and there's a strong correlation between the two, and it tends to be that when you raise, it's it's not necessarily taking the violence away that takes the poverty away, although that does that is definitely a piece, but certainly taking poverty away tends to take violence away. Right. So these these things are interrelated with one another. And that's what I was looking at is to say, okay, we can't have anything approaching a stateless private property order until we answer this ownership question. And once we answer this ownership question or start to explore it and start to answer it, then we can build on that bedrock. So it was first going backwards and then moving forward. And once I once I had dealt with these sort of base issues of ownership and started to move forward, well, then Locke made sense. Then the Declaration of Independence made sense. Then all of these things that people were embodying as descriptions started to make sense as playing out of this logical progression. Mm -hmm. And so it was just something that I had not seen done before, or at least done in that way, and perhaps it has been. I mean, certainly people have been dealing with these issues since time immemorial. Um, but you know, I mean, this was my, this was my own take on tackling it. And I, and I have to tell you that after moving through this, just my view on the world and, and sort of the next step for us to start taking the next steps that we, I think we're going to be forced to take, to be quite honest with you, because this culture is decentralizing whether we like it or not. And in that environment, this is going to be a very, very important issue. Yeah, I mean, you know, a lot of people who have this critique of property rights, they uh, and they're going to take that Marxist line that over the course of time, 
You know, if you have a property right, then there's going to be competition and the stronger will survive. And then more, you know, a few people will own all the property and all the rest of us will essentially be slaves to these few. Um, and then there's also that correlation to people when they think of property rights, they start thinking of slavery. Well, oh, right. if you believe in property rights, then you believe people can own people. So then you have this concept. I mean, you start with self-ownership. If that's the... That's right. The um, you know, the the atomic particle and the whole That's right. logical argument there. If you start with self ownership, I wish more people understood this. Then the whole concept of property rights is about preventing slavery. You can't own That's another right. person. That goes against the whole foundation of the entire system that we're talking Absolutely. about. Absolutely. Absolutely mm -hmm. right. I mean, that's a that is a key, key point. But it's it's also I think it's historically inaccurate as well. It just shows just a, a lack of historical knowledge and a lack really of an understanding of, st of economics and statistics because we can show that, that that case of, oh, it all accumulates with the same people and the same people hold on to it forever is just patently false. It's so false that we have sayings like shirt sleeves to shirt sleeves in three generations. Right. So we have these sayings to say that, no, we know that there is a natural shift and a natural churning over as cultures move forward in terms of what is valued. So, look, you could take a prime example of I was just uh, just watching uh, this uh, documentary about this early hip-hop MC in the projects of New York, Roxanne Shantae, mm. who I remember, I remember her from that time. People don't think that you go back to the, the 80s, right? And this, the idea of hip-hop, which is now a global culture, multi-billions of dollars in terms of the music, the aesthetic, all of that, this was something for completely impoverished people. And how many people came out of those same projects and were able to acquire wealth because value changed? You know, the same thing about you look at Silicon Valley. I mean, as it was coming up, these people who were interested in uh, the electronics that would become our digital age, these were marginal people. These were not necessarily wealthy people. It's not like Jobs and Wozniak were these incredibly wealthy guys. Right. There are these types of opportunities all the time. If you have a free market, the churn in a free market is going to be so much faster because you remove the barrier to entry for innovation. And whenever you have innovation, that's what allows the value structure to change. And whenever the value structure changes, new people are going to come into the fray who have a new set of skills that was not valuable previously. And those people, whether that's artistic, whether that's from an engineering standpoint, whether that's purely aesthetic, whether it's just that, look, it doesn't really, it's not really any more important that you live next to a factory, right? That's not very important. Um, you know, but the idea of that you've got the gift of gab uh, and that you could somebody who could do a podcast and make money with the podcast like you could actually make money at that. Now, there was a time when the entertainment industry, acting, musicians, all of that, they were destitute. Mm -hmm. You know, you go back to the 15, 1600s. Nobody wanted to be 
a musician. That was a halfway to homeless. Even, right. if you were the, <laughs> even if you were the most famous musician in the entire country, you were halfway to homeless. If you were lucky, you had some uh, wealthy patron who liked you so much that they let you live in their home, right? Yeah. And now the wealthiest musicians are, are have a heavy political power, not just financial. So that's to say that it's like, it's just wrong. It's just technically, historically wrong. Mm -hmm. Money circulates, capital circulates, capital's constantly looking for new avenues. Uh, the only time that you get that stratification is when you have centrally controlled economies. And then it sits in the hands of one party and their children and their descendants. That's it. Yeah, I mean, that. it, it always surprises me that people who advocate for a stronger centralized government in order to disperse the funds more equally, uh, they don't they don't seem to perceive that the people who are the wealthiest are the ones that are using that central authority in order to amass more capital for themselves. That's right. The government is the tool that they're using to create this stratification, and they know damn well what they're doing. Uh, and when you look at it, would you just allow this this the government from being able to create these barriers for entry, then you have a, a, a hearty middle class because That's it's right. easy. If you have a great idea, it's going to be off and running. I want to give you, you said that term barriers to entry and it just like hit me in the face because I live here in Mendocino County, Northern California, also mm -hmm. known as a part of the Emerald Triangle, right? We have a huge cannabis industry here. Sure. And as someone who has been a libertarian for a long time, I've always advocated, of course, for legalization. But this centralized authority has now uh, legalized, true. and this industry is switching from essentially a free market. I mean, a black market's not really a free market, but it operates, right. I think, more closely uh, in the real world than this sure. regulated market. And we're witnessing the transition from you know, the black market into this new legal market. And I'll tell you, for to start a farm here in Mendocino County, which used to be I got a handful of seeds. I'm gonna That's throw. Right. I'm gonna throw some seeds in my backyard. I'm gonna put some water on there. Maybe I'll make me some compost from my dinner scraps, and I can grow some, you know, killer cannabis to five hundred thousand dollars, maybe a million dollars that you need to break into this market on the lower levels, on the lower tiers, tens, hundreds of millions of dollars to compete. You know, on the on the bigger levels, the barrier to entry is now huge, and I think I'm probably about to witness the devastation of the middle class in Mendocino County here. I mean, it's been thriving on Very the likely. on the black market for you know decades, and this transition is is being is going to be a really rough one for exactly that reason. I mean, it's I'm just watching it happen, and it's amazing that again having this centralized authority. With the monopoly on violence, which then arbitrates all the claim disputes on property rights, uh, they end up being able to tweak this and tweak that. And who benefits? Sure. The people that control the centralized authority, not the rest of us, you know? Of uh, course. I mean, how could it not? Right. Right? Like, it's, like that's, it's obvious. That's, that's of course, what, that's, that's what, what they're what, doing. <laughs> and it's weird that, you know, uh, one of the first when I sort of decided, okay, I'm going to take my libertarian views public. I mean, I had been on a TV show for a long time, and it looked like, okay, either one, it's not going to be filming anymore, or two, if it is filming, I'm secure in this. I've been on it six seasons. It's fine, and I don't even care if they were to – you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. and, and one of the first, very first little video rants that I did was on this topic, and I, yeah. the title is Legalizing Marijuana Will Make You Less Free. Right. That's people <laughs> – and it's crazy the amount of flack that I got, but it's, be, it's because people 
I don't I, and I don't know where that blind spot is to be honest. I don't know where that blind spot is. Uh, you know, uh, I, I like Jordan Peterson and I think one of the one of the powerful things that he says is that he's yeah. like the important thing is to recognize that you are a monster. Like don't think that if you were in power, like you have to really be good with yourself and admit that if you were in power and you had the ability to siphon funds or to use that power to enrich yourself and to enrich your family, don't tell me that you wouldn't do it. Right. Don't tell me that you would pass up that opportunity because that's a goddamn lie. It's just a lie. It's not true because you do it every day. And so to look at an institution that empowers people who want to violently restrict the peaceful behavior of others and, and gives them the resources of stolen income to be able to – stolen money to be able to do that and to support that is – I just can't do it. Mm-hmm. I mean when you, when you just are realistic about it – because I, I know myself, right? I know that I, sh- that I, am, I don't trust myself with that amount of power. I really don't, and I think that I'm a good and moral and ethical person, but that's the exact reason why I would never want to have that much power. Well, and on top of that, who are the type of people that do want that kind of power? They're the ones who are already corrupted or very That's easily right. corruptible or, you know, they're already lusting for power. They're looking at this centralized institution. They're going, oh, those guys have a monopoly on the, the power of violence. They can That's use right. this authority. And, uh, of course, I'm going to go there, <laughs> you know? I mean, I think the studies have shown that there are as many psychopaths in government as there are in prisons. You, you know, it's like... Uh, well, it's not, it's not surprising. Yeah, it's not surprising. <laughs> I mean, it, that, this is an important, you know, the, I think that as you start to drill down into this, and it's funny that if you go to any of sort of the major libertarian personalities and you look at over the years, there is always a point. And it's, it's, it's a point for me as well, and it's one of the most difficult things to, to talk about, is that you always reach the point where it's the psychopaths. <laughs> where, right. you, where you're like, every, all the problems that the entire call for the state to exist is based on psychopaths. And when you start looking at it, it's like, well, one to, they say maybe 1% to 3% of the population. It's not a very well understood uh, phenomenon at right. all. Uh, one to three percent of the population are just psychopaths. Like yeah. Dr. Robert Hare has figured this out, and uh, he's got this Hare psychopathy scale. It's very, very controversial because, of course, you don't want to like you don't want to uh, label somebody with that inappropriately. But the thing is that if there's one to three percent of the population who are basically born without a conscience, mm-hmm. which the rest of us can't actually understand, right. it's something like trying to understand being blind if you've seen like colors before you know how do you it's very very hard to imagine that or vice versa right imagine seeing colors if you're if you're blind Mm -hmm. so it's very it's very very difficult for us to imagine what it would be like to have no conscience whatsoever and of course an institution that's a monopoly on violence that's all about power is going to be the the first place that these people are going to want to go yeah it's going to be their prime destination and their prime desire because it just fits in uh, and it resonates with them and you know it's interesting to me as i've thought about this more and more and more i tend to believe now that as i look at history but whether whether this is a some cosmic um you know whether this is some some sort of cosmic truth that and the reason why it's sticking around or whether it's just a historical truth that I actually believe that that 1% to 3% of the population that just kind of pops out that way, born that way, 
is really the sort of cultural mutagen that is that is mutating the mimetic material of culture mm-hmm. and sort of forcing us to to move forward to overcome and to say well what do we do like how do we handle these few psychopaths sometimes we get it right i think that uh what's happening right now in terms of the shift that we have i mean we have this prime example with uh you know both the me too movement and this recent uh part thing that happened after the parkland shooting which in both cases is a reaction to psychopaths mm-hmm. it's a reaction to some small percentage of predators who are clearly sick uh, according to how any one of us would look at it and yet let's go ahead and punish everybody based on this one to three percent and who's going to be doing the punishing well the psychopaths of course yeah I mean, <laughs> well that's where i was kind of going with this too it's like i i actually have a this is kind of my theory in talking about long-term cycles and historical sure. cycles is that this so you have a spectrum of consciousness on one end of the spectrum is going to be the highly empathic, very emotional human being. On the other end of the spectrum is the psychopath, the person that really has no emotional connection, objectifies everything, objectifies women, if you want to go. I mean, I can even, you know, I have an argument to say that this kind of consciousness is the root of what they, people call the patriarchy. Sure. You're, you're objectifying women, you're objectifying, commodifying the Mother Earth, if you will. Sure. Um, sure. and that, and that history kind of travels back and forth on these larger cycles of, well, who's in control right now. We're going through a cycle, a long cycle. I would, I would say this, um, you talked about this religion, the religion, the indoctrination, uh, how religion works with the warrior class to indoctrinate. I think all of this is like creating this consciousness of, if you will, psychopathy. I mean, that's describing it that way is on a very far end of a spectrum, and all of the rest of us are in the middle somewhere, and we're not going there, but... But, you know, that that end of the spectrum of consciousness is where we're at. And this transition that we're in is like, hey, wait a minute, we can't just objectify everything, you know, because it takes all the fun out of life or it takes the meaning out of life. Actually, like uh, existentialism. I mean, what is existential Mm -hmm. angst except, God, I've over objectified everything and now I don't give a damn about anything anymore. Sure. So I'm hoping that, you know, what we're witnessing is this shift back into, uh, you know, a more emotionally connected culture that can actually, you you know, that can that can function uh, in a different way. You know, this is the shift that's happening. And people like you and me are trying to, you know, push it along the path here and trying to figure out what it is and trying to describe it. But, um, you know, that's just just kind of some brainstorm ideas out there of the way that I have thought have been thinking about this for a while well let me expand on on that a little bit because i think you know archetypally we're talking about the uh you know if we talk about this sort of male female and i think it's fine for us to use not in a pejorative way the matriarchy and the patriarchy right Mm -hmm. and and i've been exploring this a lot more as i've been seeing this shift because i do that is clearly the yin and yang and it goes back and forth and right clearly there's such a uh uh a fierce objectification, as you say. There's been such a fierce strat- stratification, hierarchical, these hierarchical, centralized, authoritarian structures, right? These have been huge. And so, of course, you're going to get the reaction now. But the problem is that both of those archetypes, both the father archetype, well, of course, patriarchy means father rule, right? Mm-hmm. Pa- pa- mm-hmm. Patros is the father and, and Matra is the mother, right? So it's father rule and mother rule. And that's uh, that's talking about the archetypal 
father and mother. And now on the father side, you have two sides of that coin. You have the wise king and you have the tyrant. And right. on the mother side, you have the blessed mother and the devouring mother. And so one of the dangers that I do see right now is that while we are talking about and seeing that there's this shift to somehow imbue the mother with uh, necessarily positive attributes is to miss it uh, or to necessarily imbue the father with negative attributes is to miss it because the the devouring mother is just as because it's a spectrum right so mm-hmm. it's like it's acid and base and the idea is drinking sulfuric acid or hydrochloric acid will kill you and so will drinking bleach right <laughs> right one is way too base for your body to survive one is way too acid for your body to survive neither it's not like oh forget that acid i'll just drink this bleach mm-hmm. and i feel like that's a problem and we need to address that that it's like no the middle path is water it's that 7 ph it's perfectly in between acid and base and this is the thing for us to say the negative, we don't want the devouring mother, we don't want the tyrant. Mm-hmm. We want the wise king on the throne with the blessed mother. We want them both interacting with each other as much as possible. And that both need to be – if you don't have the wise king, you can't have the blessed mother. Right, right. You can't. So we have to embrace both. So it's not just to say – so this shift is happening. And this is why I see, like, we've had a very, very long time to sort of try to mitigate the patriarchy. And what's interesting is how the patriarchy has been mitigated. Like, people don't realize, you know, the American experiment is very much, well, first, Christianity. Christianity in in the West, well, look, you look, you've got the matriarchy starting from the beginning, the Blessed Virgin, right? You, You start the, right. You start with the, the the blessed mother, like she is such an integral part of that whole story. Well, can right? I say something really quickly Go here ahead, too? You, you talk about rape in your book, but I also think that this this commodification. I, I find like let's take the. Um, it's been in the news lately that Nestle is now trying to get water rights to this big aquifer down in sure. South America. And now we're starting to see these major corporations coming in and um, trying to commodify. Well, I mean, you talk about the owned and the unownable, like what is right. owned and these natural resources that these corporations, the, I, I find that the, these corporations and this centralized government, I, if I analyze it like a gang, you know, like a, like a organized crime syndicate, right? That's then what it, they are. Yeah. So, suddenly it becomes clear, right? You're like, oh, now it all sure. makes sense. Sure. And what do, what does your, you know, what do, what does a crack dealer do? He gives out some free crack and right. then he quit. You know, what do the oil guys do? They make everybody buy these cars. They give out some cheap oil and then they jack the price as soon as everybody's addicted to it. I mean, this is the sure. classic hustle, you know, this is what sure. gangs do, you know? Sure. And, and so we're. We're watching, you know, Nestle Corporation doing the same thing to water. My God, water, you know, the Native Americans are like, we have water is life. You know, they, they worship water and it's all over the place. There's an abundance of clean water in their culture. And in our culture, they're pol- polluting so much of it. And then the corporations are running in there and getting all the good stuff and then charging an arm and a leg for it. And it's like, ah, this is, this is a classic hustle. So to finish my point and get back to what you were saying... Please. The, the it's human sexuality was commodified in this way by the early 
the early patriarchs, sure. if you will, where suddenly, sure. so you have the virgin whore complex, getting back to the Virgin sure. Mary, that's been, you know, embedded in, in this archetype in Christianity, because suddenly there was a price on virginity and a price on female sexuality. Well, but there is a price on female sexuality. Let's not, uh, let's not say that that's a cultural construct, because this is not just a human thing. Mm-hmm. Right. There's a heavy price on female sexuality. Uh, You know, in the book, I deal with I I talk about the intraspecies violence of herbivores. Right. So you look at herbivores, you look at I mean, we have right out here. uh, I live in uh, Las Vegas and right out here in the mountains, our our state animal is the bighorn sheep. Right. Mm -hmm. Those horns are instruments of intraspecies violence. Now, they don't have a market system, but for the ability to mate with certain ewes in a certain region, they will put themselves through. I mean, they're fighting and potentially fighting to the death. Sure. And this is built into their biology. And there's animal after animal after animal. And bighorn sheep are not, I mean, these are herbivores. These are not carnivores. These are not. But you have so many of these. And it's not just that. It's, It's birds that build particular nests. Or that have that have a, spe- a special song, and the ones that have the best song mm-hmm. and are able to do the most work, the most labor in building their nest and in building it the right way, are the ones that get the female. This is built in. This right. is built in way before human beings walked this earth. Sure, sure. I, I mean, I, I understand that this is a this is a basic nature of of sexuality in general. I mean, this is just sure. the the yin and yang and how it interplays. Um, but I guess what I'm saying is that this was a way for the the patriarchy or the father to ensure the virginity of the of the bride. Because you talk in your chapter about rape. the The important thing is that women own their sexuality oh, and then they right. make their choice now the rest that's of it right. guys fighting over girls that's never going to go away that's you know right. I, I get that's a part of life but if you take away the woman's right to choose well then you've got this this patriarchy and then if the men are getting together and commodifying and buying and selling their daughter's virginity well you know this is characteristic of what i would describe as the patriarchy as opposed well, that's to slavery yeah that's slavery sure. right straight and, up and and this is something that we that actually it was an embracing of the matriarchy, certainly in, well, first it was an embracing of Christianity, right? Because the abolition movement was a completely Christian movement. Mm. And Christianity is itself a, a matriarchal reaction uh, back and a decentralized reaction back against a highly centralized, highly hierarchical um, authoritarian system of rule. So if you look at who killed Jesus, you had the the temple on one side, which I mean, literally, I mean, if you understand how the uh, how the temple itself was set up, hierarchical to the core, right, that the ancient uh, temple there in Jerusalem, and then also mm-hmm. the Roman, em- the Roman Empire. Yeah, right. So what you, you know, so we're talking right there. Uh, but then so you had that. But then also, the the US as the the United States, the experiment is a matriarchal experiment through and through. The idea that all men are created equal is a matriarchal idea. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's absolutely. It's 100% from the mother, because de- it's decentralized, it's lat- it lateralizes everyone, right? The idea that all men are created equal, it, that is the, the, the match and the modicum and the idea of the matriarchy itself, um, because all children are created equal. 
right? All children need the same amount of – it's like no, no child is going to pop out of the womb and be walking. Mm-hmm. Like that's just not how it works. They pop out. They're an infant. That's it. Mm-hmm. That's it. All, and all men are created equal in the fact that we all come through that. We all come out in the same way. Like that's it. Nobody, no infant is special over another infant except that it's yours. Right. Right. Except for the emotional feeling that you have. And it's like, so again, this is the balance that every time we've had, every time you have massive patriarchy come, the, what comes out of the culture is this matriarchy. Now, sometimes that's good. And I think for the most part, it's been good because, well, because quite frankly, we've lacked the communication tools that we have. We, have, we haven't seen the matriarchy get um, – well, we haven't seen it get toxic and get corrupt in the last 10,000 years mm-hmm. because we've been having an emerging patriarchy. But we need to remember that you know slavery doesn't exist anymore. So there was some self-regulating mechanism within that growth of the patriarchy that got it out. And what, some of that is due process. Some of that is rule of law. Those are all patriarchal ideas as well. Human sacrifice is a matriarchal idea. Hmm. That, so this is something to consider. And I think that it's also when you start to look at how the culture is changing, when you start to look at a movement like the Me Too movement, right, for better or worse, However Mm -hmm. you feel about it, that's not really what's important in this case. What's important is to look at the structure. Take yourself out of the emotion. That's what people really need to do. Take yourself out of the emotion and see that here you have very powerful people being laid low, having their lives destroyed without the state acting, without due process, without any of these things that are traditionally part of the patriarchy. Mm Mm-hmm. It's hard matriarchal power, which is the power of consensus, decentralized, rumor, innuendo, memes, these ideas traveling in a massive whisper network and then springing forward. Mm -hmm. That it has the ability now to lay low very powerful people. We've only seen the beginning. And, And so for us to move through and to say this is all good is to really be setting ourselves up, coming full circle to what we talked about at the beginning, to say that this is something new. It's not. It's not. We just have to look a lot further back to see what this was. Sure. Well, one of the things that's coming to my mind that I, I, I'd i like to discuss uh, about the way that we've been talking about it, because it's so easy to talk about it in terms of these archetypes and these sure. metaphors and these grand sure. concepts, but what's really interesting when discussing the patriarchy and the matriarchy is that we're also, and as you bring up the Me Too movement, it's also very practical. It has to do with our daily relationships. How do men and women interact with each other in this particular culture at this particular time? We have an archetypal mindset, or you know, uh, the archetype is part of our. I, you know, the, if you're if you're a Jungian, you know, you're going into the it's archetypal everything. world. It's but, everything. Yeah. But then, you know, if you're a Freudian, then it's actually your sexual experience. Sure. That's and sure. and I think again, there's another continuum. There's another yin yang, and finding the balance between those two, it's where it's at. So we can discuss the archetypal movements, these longer historical movements. But then, as the Me Too movement is really showing us, is um, 
that it really affects, you know, individuals and their personal lives, you know, on a really basic level. And uh, there's definitely a lot of um, women that, in my opinion, are certainly understandably upset about being raised in a situation where they're over-objectified and young men that aren't really taught how to deal with their feelings in in the appropriate way. You talk, actually, this is kind of interesting because I, and I wanted to ask you about this. You have a chapter in your book about the rite of passage. Yes. It wasn't exactly, didn't, to me, it didn't fit in linearly with the argument that you were making. It was just kind of, it was in there. Interesting. Well, I mean, you know, go ahead and, and fill me in. Maybe I just missed it. Sure. Um, but as we're discussing this, it's, I think, because young men don't have that type of rite of passage in our culture, we kind of, you know, we have to figure all this stuff out on our own, in a sense, and it becomes a, a, a Lord of the Flies, like you brought up in the book. It becomes a kind of a dog-eat-dog world until people figure it out on their own. It, uh, we're we're well, lacking I mean, a let's, cultural let's, construct. Let's talk about what the use of a rite of passage is. So mm-hmm. for people who maybe aren't, aren't familiar with the idea of a rite of passage, uh, because it's not common in our culture, we don't really have them, unless you're from right. a more traditional culture. Like if you're Jewish, uh, you may have had a uh, bar mitzvah, mm-hmm. uh, or uh, you know, same with uh, if you're Catholic. It, but mostly if you're more uh, religious or in a traditional society, right? But the idea of a rite of passage in uh, in its initial use and how it's still used in many traditional cultures is the idea that it's usually some sort of an ordeal. Or a, a trial, you could say. It certainly is ceremonial or, or ritual. So the Aborigines do uh, of Australia, the Aboriginal people, they'll do a walkabout. Um, there are, you know, you've, people have probably seen the island where the guys kind of do like a bungee jumping with these vines. There are other ones that are ritual scarification or tattooing. It usually is something that involves um, willingly subjecting yourself to uh, pain that is usually very difficult to bear in the witness of uh, the, the elders and the rest of the society. And that once you go through this process, after that you are accepted as an adult in the mm-hmm. tribe. And so one of the things that's very important when we start talking about ownership is that invariably when you start thinking about this, you start getting to, well, what about children? Right. What about children? Like, what's the deal with children? We clearly can't give a two-year-old full property rights and full bodily autonomy. Like, how do we deal with this, right? And so, again, this is something that we've embodied for probably a million years, uh, at, at least hundreds of thousands, because it's, it's old, 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 is that we've embodied and we've recognized, oh, yeah, oh, yeah, mm-hmm. children – we have to treat, in terms of their property, their bodily autonomy, the idea of self-ownership, we have to treat them differently than we treat adults. And and it's the self-ownership part again, because then you see, oh, that's why it has to be voluntarily put yourself through suffering. Right. You have to prove that you own yourself. Mm-hmm. And then once you've proven to all of us, as us as witnesses, then we will give you self-ownership. You are a valid member of the tribe, right? Right. This is why it fits in. Yeah. Okay. So only adults should be treated with self-ownership. We have to make a separation if we're going to have this work. Mm-hmm. If we're going to have an, uh, a society based on self-ownership, we're going to have to make a delineation of when are you a child and when are you an adult? Because when you're a child, we don't hold you fully responsible. 
And I find it to be one of the most it's, – it's interesting. Before we were waiting for this, uh, I, uh, an article popped up here, and it was about this Parkland shooting thing. And I find I, – I, this is why the rite of passage thing is so interesting to me. Mm-hmm. This Parkland shooting and this Never Again movement, and it was from the Hill. And they were talking about, you know, this the the kid David Hogg now has uh, Laura Ingram had said the talk show host had said some rather rude things and sort of kind of trolled him about not getting accepted to four colleges that he had applied to. Right. And yeah. as a result, as a result, he started tweeting, here are all of Laura Ingram's uh, sponsors, pick two or three and start calling them and telling them that they should boycott Laura Ingram's show. Okay. Hmm. Now, this is a use of, of hard matriarchal power. This is how matriarchal power works. It's slander, right? So this is, this is how uh, the female hierarchy is built. All you got to do is remember back to high school and remember how the girls in high school <laughs> organize themselves. It's very natural. It's very normal. This is the matriarchy as the devouring mother, mm-hmm. okay? So what has happened now is Laura Ingram has started to lose these, uh, these advertisers and whatnot. But what's interesting about this particular situation that's different than most boycotts is people are speaking out and saying, well, this is inappropriate. One, I don't agree with what he's doing. I I think that they're perhaps going after property rights. You know, I want to have a discussion about that. And the reaction is, and this is what The Hill was writing about, is that they were saying, well, he's unassailable because he's a child. See, because they're playing both sides. Right. In a society that would have a rite of passage, they would say, no, you're not allowed to speak about these issues. You're not allowed to speak about issues that affect adults because you have not gone through the rite of passage, Mm -hmm. right? But, but you are protected from being assailed by other adults. So other adults cannot assail you as an adult. But in our society, without a rite of passage, what we have is one, we're, and this is why they're using children in this case. Sure. It's, it's a, they know this. It's a mass because, gray area. Yeah. Well, it's not gray at all. It's they're taking both. They're mm. taking both. They're saying, I'm going to act as an adult, and I'm going to be able to have an effect as an adult, but I'm immune to being basically tried as an adult. Mm-hmm. I'm immune. If you try to come after me, you're attacking a child. And so it's this it's this gross perversion of these cultural norms that we know are right and that we know are virtuous. It's the gross perversion. And so until we have a rite of passage, we're going it's going to get worse and worse and worse. There's been I read an article recently and I, I talked about it on my show where uh, these these British researchers were saying, "Oh, uh, adulthood doesn't start until 26. Now, <laughs> you're a child until I, we should keep people as children until age 26." Right. And it's like, well, but so what does that mean? Yeah. <laughs> like, what does that? But they're able to get. But I can't deny them a job once they turn 18. But then, so what? And so we're seeing, this is what I'm saying, is we're seeing it play out. And again, this is part of, this is the matriarchy as well, that it's like the devouring mother is the one that is, uh, you know, that turns out the grotesquely perverted child because she doesn't play by those rules, especially the mother and the son, mm-hmm. right? Is the, is the mother who's like, my son can do no wrong. He did no wrong. She's the one who's like, He's in college and something happens and she shows up. I'm going to talk to your professor. 
right? Who never, she's the one who molly coddles him, who never allows him to be an adult, who never allows him to have a rite of passage. So then what do you have? You have a grown baby. Yeah. And, and so that's how the rite of passage is so, is, is a crux, an important aspect if you want to have real self-ownership because only adults can claim self-ownership. And a rite of passage has traditionally, we know it works, of defining it's not age, it's not any of that. It's when you're ready to take the rite of passage, you show and prove self-ownership, boom. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's what I meant about the gray area. It's it's like when does somebody become an adult? It creates this gray area that then makes this passage into adulthood actually you know kind of a curiosity or or, or right. you know it's, it's just more confusing and people don't know where they're at and they don't know where they mm-hmm. stand with the rest of society with older people younger people i've actually had a theory in the past that our culture which seems to um really idolize this concept of the innocence of youth sort of mm. pushes and you when you said you know like almost pushing that youth age up to 26 it seems like our culture i mean i actually you know, I have two kids of my own, and I actually like to make them as mature as possible, as early as possible, because I figure That's the great. sooner you can take care of yourself, you know, the better off you are. But, um, you know, it, it is a tendency in our culture to be like, oh, you know, we don't want to talk about these adult things. We don't want to let them know about this kind of thing. We want to keep them in that, in you know, that childhood innocence for as long as possible. And suddenly you've got these, you know, 24, 25, 26-year-olds that really kind of are considered more children than adults or are, you know, functioning more like children than adults or are still, you know, not especially considering the economy and everything. I mean, I'm not even, I'm not being judgmental about it. I'm just saying that it is a, a cultural phenomenon right now that something like a rite of passage would really be able to make that delineation happen. Sure. Now you're, you know, with the adults working towards, you know, the promotion of our community, right. you know, now you're a child. So in the book, then, this also comes back to the idea you talk uh, a few chapters on collectivism to make a comparison and contrast between what is self-ownership versus what is collectivism. And you have this analysis that the collective is more like when you are a child. You, you, when you're living in the family, you're living in a collective and and it functions like a collective. Um, but then, as you become an adult, theoretically, or in some cultures, if you have this rite of passage, then you're granted self-ownership. That's right. And, you know, you become an adult, you become responsible for yourself and responsible for taking care of the, you know, and working with and being a part of the rest of the community. Um, so do you want to comment on that? And then yeah, I thought... Yeah, I mean, I'd love to talk about collectives because I think that mm-hmm. it can go back to... Uh, to address the the problem with corporatism, right? So the problem sure. that uh, the problem that's inherent, I think, when we talk about, for instance, corporations and governments going in and uh, you know basically claiming uh, ownership over things that are unownable. One of the things is, is that that I think is important and that I wanted to delve into and why I started with collectivism is that ficti- the, uh, to deal with the idea of fictitious entities, right? So a corporation can't own anything mm-hmm. because a corporation, it does not have a self. A corporation does not have a spirit or a consciousness. It does not have the spark of the divine. It does not have a body. It cannot labor. 
And it's even in the idea of even in the word corporation, which is to say that it's becoming a body. It's being incorporated <laughs> and turned into a fictitious body that did not exist before. Yeah. These are fictitious entities that can't own anything in the first place. Right. right? And that's the problem. They're creations so, by government, by the way. Like, they're, well, they're government, government programs. Yeah. This is, and this is, a, this is an important thing that I think that, that those people who see it need to communicate it. Mm. And, and it's something that I think is one of the things that can unite the right and the left is to say – a corporation is a government program. If you have a problem with corporations doing things, you have to realize, first off, clearly we have a problem with corporations doing things. And we recognize that individuals would never do these things. One of the reasons individuals would never do these things is because there's no cover, right? Very few individuals are, are psychopathic enough that they would take on to their own shoulders the responsibility of, yeah, I'm going into this country myself, and I'm going to take their resources, and <laughs> I'm going to do this by force of arms. Very few individuals would do that. Very few of the CEOs of corporations would be willing to put themselves out there like that if they, didn't, sure. have the, if they didn't have the cover of the corporation. Mm -hmm. Okay. The, the limited Fair liability enough. of the corporation. The limited I mean, they're liability. given limited liability, which gets back to ownership which and is, property Which right. is granted by the violence of the state and only the violence of the state. So yeah. this is when people say to me, you know, it's a, it's a weird argument where they're like, well, if we had no state, if we, if there was no state, you're talking about a stateless society. Well, the corporations would take over. And I'm like, no state, no corporations. Right. <laughs> yeah, I, know. I don't know wh what corporations, corporations are a government program. No corporations, no government. You know, people don't get it because uh, I don't know. You know, this the left-right paradigm. I I think you'll agree. Is, is I don't even know what it is. It, it you know philosophically, it doesn't make a lot of sense. I kind of yeah. I kind of know the origins of it. But what you know, people are choosing teams. Uh, mm -hmm. peop, the the average Republican. I mean, they don't really read Austrian economics. They're not no. you know or and the average person on the left. I mean, they don't understand what we're talking about when when we're talking about property rights. And they think that you know the people on the right are promoting corporations and the people you, right. you know it's well, like some of them are right so you you've got collectivists on one side and collectivists on the other which yeah. is why i wanted to deal with collectivism right yeah, that it's yeah. like everything you don't like in the other side is collectivism and if you would abandon the your own collectivism mm -hmm. you would start to see oh i don't actually disagree with this person on basically anything <laughs> i know right <laughs> yeah <laughs> like, in the average day-to-day -day walking around, when, when you take the gun out of the room, when it's like, oh, I can't vote to make you do whatever I prefer that you do. Mm -hmm. Oh, I just can't do that. I actually have to like talk with you and we actually have to negotiate this out. Oh, well, actually, I actually like you uh, a lot more. You know, and it's the, you know, you look at the, it's, we embody it because it's that average, like people dreading going home for the holidays because, oh, you know, my uh, super Republican Trump supporting Uncle yep. Jim and my Aunt Rita, who's <laughs> a who's a socialist and, a, and part of Antifa are going to be arguing with each other. And it's going to be and you're like, but take those away. Do they have anything like they don't have anything to argue about? Yeah. They're just sitting there. Oh, how was your? Oh, you're doing that. Oh, that's fantastic. And, yeah, and, right. so, <laughs> and so for, for me, that was that was. That's what's been so interesting about this journey is that I'm more than happy. Those things that most people have as preferences where it's like, look, 
I'm more than happy to have to let you have your preferences if you'll let me have my preferences. If neither one of us are bothering each other, yeah, like it's it's if you take the gun out of the room where we can't enforce aesthetic preferences with force, or at least it's not even that where we can't use the force of the state. Mm -hmm. Because if most people, again, if most people had to do it themselves, right? If as an individual, it's like. I'm going to stop all those gays from getting married, right? right? Or I'm going to or I myself am going to stop these people from speaking and saying some things that I disagree with and I find to be offensive. If they had to do it all by themselves, they just wouldn't do it. Yeah. It would be worth that it wouldn't be worth the hassle, but voting takes no work. Yeah. Yeah, how often are you willing to actually throw down yourself, you know? <laughs> like, Never. It, yeah, it doesn't Never. happen. <laughs> <laughs> Never. It's the, you suddenly realize what's important. Sure. You suddenly realize, oh, wait, I actually have to, I'm going to have to physically risk my life for this. Is it worth risking my life? No? Well, then uh, it's, I don't care. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I don't care. Yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. But do I care enough to vote? Well, okay, that cost me nothing. Yeah, sure. Right? Well, and then, you know, I mean, on this show, I am I am always looking for ways to unite the left and right because I really find it to be more or less a divide and conquer tactic by the, the upper these upper classes that do control this, you know, centralized monopoly on violence. They've created this system so that we're all fighting each other and then we all go and vote and it doesn't really matter right. who we vote for because they're in control of the system anyway. That's right. That's and, right. And so, you know, what a waste of effort. Um, if we really want to empower ourselves, then we need to be going in a completely different direction. And there's, you know, there's enough of us that if we all eliminate, you know, get rid of this left-right paradigm, stop fighting each other, get together. Well, I mean, they can't stop us. There's no way. So, I mean, I, I think even, you know, it may be very difficult to get rid of the left-right paradigm first. I actually think we can get rid of the state first, and then the hmm. left-right paradigm just falls away. Interesting. So, so it's almost like teaching – if the left understood how the state is screwing them, and the right understood how the state is screwing them, let them find their own ways to remove the state. Mm-hmm. Right. Let them remove the state from the places that they want it removed from. That's how I look at it. Yeah. And then let's see what's left. Let's see if you really disagree with each other because you might not. You right. know, it's like it's like when it, it's funny because, I, you know, I, I've been a football fan my whole life. And when I was living in California, I was a, and, and we had lost the Rams, which is the team I grew up with. I was a, a, mm-hmm. a big Chargers fan and we would go down to San Diego for the Oakland Raiders game. And the Raiders fans are, and they're coming here to Vegas. So I don't. I'm luckily I'm headed to New Hampshire before that happens. But it was the it was more fun watching the Raiders fans and Chargers fans fight each other <laughs> uh, than it, in the stands. And it was crazy. There would be there were cops everywhere and whatnot. And the same thing with soccer hooligans and whatnot. You realize like, wow, we will really square off and really take it seriously to the point where we will put ourselves in harm. And we will really get geared up to go to war over, like, a completely manufactured logo and a jersey? Right. Like, wow, that's crazy. (laughs) Like, both teams that are really in the same league, that's the same company that actually share ticket sales between one another. It's like professional wrestling. But people will really, truly line up. So that's why I say... I think the idea of trying to get people to uh, abandon that is a futile exercise because I think it's just part of human nature. But sure. But if perhaps we can redirect who's the enemy, mm-hmm. 
I think that is actually productive because people are more than willing to take on a new enemy. They're more than willing. I've gotten on these, uh, you know, these Facebook groups about anarchy because I and I and I've actually took a couple months out of my life to kind of follow these, you know, because there we're sort of what you might call anarchist capitalists, the way that we're talking about yeah, property rights and sure. these things. Yeah, yeah. But uh, there are also just for those that don't understand the nuances of anarchy, there's anarcho-communists. Sure. And uh, I was very curious about like, okay. Who are these guys? I mean, you know, what's and I get on these groups. It's hilarious because, like Republicans and Democrats, they just they're fighting each other all the time, you know. And you're like, they're like, you're not really an anarchist because you're, you know, you're a capitalist, and the corporations are going to take over the world, or what, you know. And and then the, you know, the the cap the the anarcho capitalists are well, you know, you're just a collectivist, and somebody's going to centralize control in your collective, and. I mean, it's just outrageous. And you know what? Maybe, but maybe they will. Like, maybe they will centralize control in their collective. But if it's so, I don't. I don't fundamentally have a problem with. And I say this is actually the opening sentences of my book, Self Ownership, is a little mm-hmm. essay called "A Concession," to where I say, "Hey, all of these systems work. If 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 what work means is to." Uh, carry on the genes into the next generation and keep people alive long enough. Right. Everything, every organizational system has always worked. Yeah. But you want the one with the least suffering. But And part of the least suffering is to be able to live in a society that's organized in a way that you most agree with. Mm-hmm. Right. So I may think that the profit motive is because I'm naturally entrepreneurially inclined. I may think that the profit motive is a pleasurable place to be. But there may be someone else who thinks that living communally and sharing, and there are people clearly that think that, that that's better. So so long as we agree to let each other do that in peace, mm-hmm. it's all good. Like, right. again, this whole, the argument of anarcho-communism or anarcho-capitalism is like, okay, are you trying to force me to do your thing? If the answer is no, then I don't care. <laughs> like, yeah. Do your thing, man. Do your thing. And you know what? If mine starts to break down, you know, and, and things are getting shitty and you guys look like you're prosperous and I'm like, hey, I could, I could live that way. I would hope that you would take me into your community and vice versa. Right? And I think yeah. that that's, that's freedom. That's liberty. It's like you should be able to live however you live. You should be able to try all the experiments that you want to try so long as it's all voluntary and you're not hurting anybody else. Anything else is just preference. Yeah, I mean, that's where I'm at, too. Like, if you want to live in in a, you know, on a commune, then by all means, I'm not stopping you. Go for it. And I I hope you have a great life. I mean, I got even... Uh, kind of another yin yang theory that I've had is that you know higher population densities work better with more money and profit motive and more of the capitalist sure. model. And if you're in a rural community, it's highly likely that you could be on like a farming commune, and that maybe that's oh, the best no organization doubt. for that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. Well, there's actually I think there's actually no doubt. I think that's actually demonstrably true. Right. I think makes, it's demonstra- makes a lot of sense. Yes, I think it's demonstrably true that. In small communities, that a more communal, more socialistic style of living is mm-hmm. actually going to be more pleasurable, and that it, it's in a situation where you have it. See, because it's fundamentally, it's all about trust, right? Which maybe now this is a good segue into blockchain because yeah, <laughs> that's that's where that's what the problem with communal a communal system of living is. 
it's hard to keep track of who owes who what because it's not like you're getting out of a marketplace of social capital. You don't ever get outside of social capital, right? Like you still, if you're living in a society of people, I don't care how communal it is, you may split the physical resources evenly. But there is still the idea that I did something for you that I didn't have to do. There's still the law of reciprocity. Mm -hmm. That still is a human law. That still is going to determine how well your community works. Like a community that has high levels of reciprocity, in other words, where people interact with each other in a way that it's like I scratch your back, you scratch mine. The situation in which that happens the most freely and where it stays the most even Those are the most peaceful and prosperous societies, right? It's like the Amish are in a communal society, but it's like I go and raise your barn because I know that you're going to come and raise my barn, right? right? (laughs) I have this trust that's built in that it's like this is – I do these things for the community out of my own self-interest because the people that refuse to do that also get refused help Mm -hmm. when they need it. Mm -hmm. They get shunned, right? That's That's how they punish those people is ostracism. That's how it happens in a communal setting. And so that says that reciprocity is built right in. So reciprocity is a lot easier when you know everybody and when you have a small number of people that you owe. But when I'm walking around on the street out here and I run across – and I need to interact with a stranger, which we all do on a daily basis if we're living in an in a urban environment like I am, and I need to interact peacefully with strangers – reciprocity is not going to work because I might do something for this person, but I'm never going to see them again. Yeah. And so we've developed a system, not developed, a system has evolved over time. And that is, if you want to call it capitalism, that's fine. But it's just a market, right? It's a market and we use tokens of value. And those tokens of value is basically like we virtualize reciprocity. So I say, I come here and I'm going to pay you this token that you can then pay to somebody else that they can then pay to somebody else as opposed to us trying to keep track of of some level of reciprocity that's never going to happen because I'll probably never see you. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Right. So so it's to enable something that is all we're we're trying to recreate the commune because we come out of a tribal society. It's not that these this is what's so like it it's it's because it's pretty high level. Um, and it's hard for people to to wrap their head around sometimes, but it's like we are trying to constantly recreate the environment from which we came because that was millions of years of evolution in these small tribal bands. Don't think that a hundred thousand years or even and more more like five thousand years of cultural evolution is going to change the psyche of a species right. From those millions of years of it, it's just not. Yeah. It's just not. And as we've shown of the things that we've talked about, we're totally tribal. But we're still back in that time. You know, and so all of this is we're, we're just steadily trying to virtualize these concepts and ideas to get us way back to the global village. And if anything, that's what we're seeing now. Mm-hmm. That's what we're seeing. Well, and so... You know, we probably maybe have another 15, 20 minutes to talk here. So, and I and I do want to segue into the concept of blockchain because this is hopefully where we can tie all of these concepts together and then kind of project into the future why these changes uh, seem to be happening and why maybe there's some depending on you know what choices are made by people. But I mean, some optimism for the what the future mm-hmm. may hold in terms of this shift that's happening, this transition that we can make. Um, you know, and it's just a lot of things are coming up for me right now. One of the major differences that I've heard between the 
communist anarchists and the capitalist anarchists. Basically, the communist anarchists look at money, uh, which I think maybe you and I would argue the there is a real problem with this centralization of money creation. Oh, yeah. I mean, you oh, know, yes. <laughs> yeah, right. I mean, oh yes, this is how the gangsters roll, right? They oh, they yes. take they get all the money and they say this is ours and we're the only ones that can supply you with it, and that's you know, <laughs> that, <laughs> that's the root of the debt slavery right. system that we're dealing with Absolutely. right now, you know. Uh, and and a lot of these anarcho cap uh, communists will look at it and say, well, we just got to get rid of money. You know, money is the mm -hmm. problem. But what mm -hmm. we're seeing is this evolution with this blockchain technology. So again, tying everything together, the blockchain technology proves the chain of ownership. So you yes. have this this um, this ability. It provides with the encryption provides the level of trust that you need. Okay. So if people trust it enough, then we can start. Well, we have. Proof of ownership. We have trust. Well, that, these are characteristics of what you need to have a currency. Then we have currencies that are competing with these fiat currencies. Uh, and suddenly, this is a big part of the game changer. It's not the whole part of the game changer, but it's a big part of it, I think. Do you want to go into that? Sure. I mean, I think that one of the most unfortunate things about the that sort of anarcho-communist ideal and look it's come up so many times in relation to money but the fact of the matter is money is a technology mm -hmm. and and so is so is government so is so are all of these things and i think that what people forget is that technologies evolve they naturally evolve there's always a bug in a technology right the, and technologies always also corrupt so if you have a technology that's stuck around for too long, and especially when it's enforced by the state, it generally is going to be inefficient. It's the idea of, you know, governments will hold on to these old and inefficient uh, technologies that they use within their bureaucracies, whether it's computer systems or whatnot, because there's a specific contractor who's paid off and lobbied, you know, to have this thing included, and they've always paid this way, and they're always paying way too much. And it's, it's always way outdated. Mm -hmm. And in a free market, that doesn't happen. In a free market, you're competing, so you have to upgrade your technology constantly. And so the real problem in this case is not to do with even centralized fiat money. It's not even to do with the idea of debt because those things are just economic realities. Like, And you're going to find a technology and try to find a way to uh, – to actually embody these things and to move them forward. And, and debt is very, very, very important for, uh, for building a civilization. Like you can't, you can't build a civilization without some amount of, of debt. You can't build sure. anything almost, right, if you don't have the capital up front. So it's basically a way of selling your future labor. This is a that's a very very powerful concept to empower to really empower people, mm -hmm. right? But like any technology, like fire can be used to cook your food and to to take away the parasites out of it. It can also be used to burn you at the stake. And we've reached burn you at the stake with the centralized uh, fiat, right? At this point, right? And so anything that whenever you have so. The blockchain is very much has a lot of, particularly Bitcoin, has a lot of these same properties as gold, the same sort of abstract properties in terms of it has scarcity. Uh, it's very easy to prove its, its purity, you know, with the cryptographic idea. Mainly, it's scarce and it can be traded. It's to a degree fungible. It's divisible. It has all of these same properties. But it's not the only thing that's had that. I mean, there have been many, many uh, different ways of using money. Um, it's just, but it has the capability 
to be completely decentralized. It has the capability for there to be no barriers to entry. Now, barriers to entry are going to arise, right? Mm-hmm. That's that's part of how this whole thing works, and that's the reason why it's the emergence of the psychopath, right? It's what I say is that things get corrupt and things get psychopathic and the sort of new to go back to the archetypes. That's when the hero has to emerge. And right now the blockchain is a hero. Yeah. But the blockchain but the hero always turns into the tyrant. That's how the story works and then a <laughs> new hero emerges, right? The tyrant was once the conquering hero. And but then he gets old and he gets willfully blind and he gets set in his ways and he's not willing to see the things on the horizon and the new hero has to come up and he has to save uh, society. And so mm-hmm. or she or she, mm-hmm. right? So the, so this is what we're going through right now is that we have a heroic moment in money. We have a heroic moment in ideas of trust and ownership. We have no barriers to entry, none. Uh, and that's what I think is the most beautiful, beautiful thing about this. So for everybody who's so I'm teaching, I've been teaching coding courses. I've got a, a business code from go.com where I teach coding courses to complete newbies. And for me, that's a true labor of love because this is a moment. Like this is a moment where this new technology is coming about and literally anybody can take part. So anybody who's ever complained about the state of where money is, anybody who's ever had a problem with the Federal Reserve or central banks, it's like, you can learn to code right now and you can build this new world in whatever way you want. Mm-hmm. No barrier, nobody stopping you. You can be your own bank. Mm-hmm. You can have as much sovereignty as you want right now. No political solution, no edit the, audit the Fed, no let's tear this thing down, no money's a problem. It's like, you think money's a problem? Well then, create it how you want to create it. Do whatever you want to do with it. Yeah. We don't need to destroy it. Like, let's do it the right way then. Right. And I think that that's the beautiful moment that we're at. And it's like, I hope that people don't let it pass them by. Yeah, I've got to say, you know, it's interesting because you make people buy your book on your website in cryptocurrency. And I was like, man, you know, I got to get some crypto to be able to buy this guy's book. Well, I actually want to thank you for it. It totally worked on me. I was, I said to him, I mean, I've always been kind of into it, but I just had never made the leap. It took me like all week, every night. I'm like, how do I do that? I got to get a wallet. You know, I mean, I'm a total newbie, right? And, uh, but I am getting into it. I mean, it's definitely going to be something that I'm excited that you, you know, you, you made me confront, uh, you know, the change in this and deal with my learning curve. And, um, you know, I'm starting to kind of get how it works, but you know, one of the reasons why these fiat currencies can get away with what they get away with is because there's no, I mean, these centralized forces these governments that have a monopoly on violence create of course the first market you're going to corner is the currency market i mean my god i get as i'm getting into bitcoin i get on to uh you know i'm like well what's the what's the currency market look like these days and i get on the website and all of a sudden um you know i'm uh I'm seeing that there's, well, here's 500 new cryptocurrencies, and they're all competing against each other in the marketplace right. right now. And, I mean, how else can you keep a currency from getting overinflated or, you know, creating a situation of corru- getting corrupted in any kind That's of right. way is through having 499 other currencies right. right behind you saying, hey, buddy, if you're going to start screwing people like this, then we're happy to take your place, you know? That's right. Yeah. Yeah, that's uh, that and that is the power of competition, right? That's I think people start to 
start to realize that when they look a little deeper. And that's one of the reasons why, you know, and, and that's that's great. I, I mean, the greatest compliment and the, the greatest thing that I've, I've loved to hear in the last year is people saying, oh, you're the reason why I got my yeah. why I bought my first Bitcoin. Right. And yeah. and that that for me is so important because you see that like, wow, currencies can compete against each other. Mm-hmm. Like, right. Wait, what is that? And then you start to think about it. And just like you said, it's like, oh, yeah, it's that's what prevents it from getting corrupt. How it got how this whole thing got corrupt in the first place is the monopoly. Mm-hmm. And when you're like, oh, it's a monopoly. Oh, yeah, of course, it's corrupt. Like we already know that we know that monopolies are a problem. Yeah. Right. So so competition is what competition is what true entrepreneurs and true capitalists embrace competition because it's what drives you to to create the best thing that you possibly could yeah and uh and and that's the that's the positive side of it and that's what i love about this space and i i think what just what a great time what a great time to be alive i mean there's a lot of issues and a lot of things you could look out and see wow things are are, are tenuous out there but man there are so many other great great aspects to being alive right now yeah, it's pretty crazy. I mean, I have to say, I got, you know, as I was learning about it and getting into it, it had been a long time since I had felt that feeling of, of actual excitement about feeling like I was participating in the, a mm-hmm. next level project that could be even lucrative for myself for that matter. But sure, of course. just also participating in, in this like blockchain technology that really is revolutionizing the world. I mean, just as an aside, hearing you talk about, you know, cryptocurrencies in this way and just realizing that like a lot of people don't realize that American foreign policy, nations foreign policies are driven by their their cornering the market. The petrodollar drives American foreign policy. The last two countries, well, two countries that, uh, you know, stood up against the power of the petrodollar were Iraq and Libya. And right. now China has just started this petroleum currency exchange, which is probably the biggest issue that's going on in the world today. And nobody's, yep. you know, nobody's covering it. They don't understand this. And I mean, if you want to talk about world peace, because there's, a, in my opinion, I mean, I'm not going to be a, a you know, a, a doomsdayer, but if there is a war on the horizon, it's going to be with Russia and China over the petrodollar and over this Absolutely. currency exchange. Of I mean, course. this causes wars this is what they fight wars over is this is is this monopoly of the currency that the big gang you know wants to protect because it's their biggest revenue source i mean my, right. you know it's how they control our entire economy and how they skim off the top for themselves so um you know participating in in a blockchain this cryptocurrency system is actually removing yourself from that saying you that's know right. what i don't want to have anything to do with that that's crazy that's psychopaths you know these right. are psychopaths using my labor to you know corner their own market to enrich themselves beyond belief and finance these massive wars that nobody wants and i don't want to participate in it so i'm going to go over here and i'm going to do my own thing and that is that's the power to yeah, empower a human being with that choice, man, that's huge. If enough people do that, yeah. then those guys are done. Well, there's a great quote, Jacques Ellul, the uh, philosopher and sociologist in his book, The Technological Society, and I believe 1965, he said, uh, there are no political solutions, only technological ones, mm-hmm. and the rest is propaganda. Right. <laughs> and so this is the technological solution, and it's open to everyone. You can you can jump on board right now, and the great thing about it is, you jump on board, and the, you're adding to the wave of it growing. 
and to start using it. I, I think the next two years is just going to be fantastic, but also potentially scary because it's important for me to w start waking people up because governments are now attacking cryptocurrency, trying to make it illegal for the exact reasons that you're talking about. Yeah. Their entire power structure is threatened by this thing, right? They're empowered. They're in, their power structure is threatened by you no longer being a slave. Mm -hmm. Yeah, this absolutely. Is, this, is, this is you escaping the plantation. Don't think they're not going to throw up fences and send out dogs and do the whole thing. But the more people that are awake the better the chance. I mean, this is the Underground Railroad, man. Yeah. And, and it really is a peaceful, nonviolent, but incredibly effective way to get to a more peaceful world. And that's why I push it. So I want to get into this as we, uh, as we come to conclusion here so that we can really tie this together because, you know, this is what I was, as I'm reading your book and watching, you know, watching where it's going, like I said, the first part of it, uh, you know, I've, I understand John Locke. I've read my Adam Smith. I get the property rights thing. But then as you get to the end of it and you're like, and now there's blockchain and this is the next evolution of this claim, this ownership chain. Mm -hmm. That's happening, and it can separate us from, you know, the the owners owning us, the ones sure. that control the the centralized, uh, the the centralized arbiter of the ownership claim. Mm -hmm. Now it can be used in this blockchain. Well, I also heard you on another podcast as I was doing some research for the show, and you were talking about how uh, matriarchal cultures, one of their characteristics is being consensus based. That's right. And so here we have this blockchain technology that I think, if you can go into this, is also consensus-based. Absolutely. And now we're going from, lo and behold, to tie it together, the patriarchy, where the, the government centralizes the monopoly of force and is the single arbiter of ownership claims to the blockchain, which is created by a consensus of everyone saying, okay, yes, we all agree you are now the owner of this coin or whatever it is. I've even been seeing sure. technology saying you own this song, you own sure. this poem. It's a, Anything. It's, it's the way to solve the intellectual property right issue. It, it covers everything, not just coins. It's great for currency, but it's also great for other things. So sure. you, you want to take it away with that? Yeah, I mean, this is the emergence of the Blessed Mother to uh, to try to balance out the tyrant, right? Like this is – it should be no surprise that the the key innovation is the consensus model. It's uh, Satoshi Nakamoto's the creator of Bitcoin. Mm -hmm. Nakamoto consensus is the innovation. And basically what the idea is is that it, this is a distributed ledger. So uh, there's a whole bunch – I won't go into too much technical detail, but there's a whole bunch of machines that are all sort of sharing the same ledger, like would be your bank ledger that said, oh, this amount went to this person, this amount went to this person. This is a global ledger of transactions uh, that's relatively anonymous. You know, it's addresses. It's these uh, series of numbers and letters. It's not actual people's names and whatnot. Um, and so the, the challenge is, and what Nakamoto Consensus figures out is all of these machines are able, as, as people send transactions at this network, they're all able to say, okay, this is valid, this is not valid, and then they're all able to say, okay, which ledger copy is correct, and then they all keep the same copy of the ledger. And so this is this consensus model, and a matriarchal systems, even as we're saying, for better or worse, right, for better or worse, they're non-hierarchical. 
They're non-authoritarian. Mm-hmm. They're they're they are consensus-based because they're lateral. That means we don't make a change, we don't make a move until everybody agrees. And those things which everybody agrees upon are the things. It's almost the other way around. Those things which everyone agrees upon are reality. We don't we don't alter reality based on what some authority up here says oh well today it's this and tomorrow it's that and then today it's this today weed is a criminal act and then tomorrow (laughs) weed is uh completely legal and tomorrow it's decriminalized and then it's this it's that it's like no that's a different model what's what it's more like is like language yeah right right how does the word cat mean a little furry thing that's running along on the ground we don't know it's just that we all agree that that's it and that it's spelled C-A-T and that those symbols mean something like these. this is the consensus evolutionary process and we have both things in, in our society and we live with both things. We have never had – well, except for gold. Gold came about not because some authority said mm. gold is what you use. It evolved as a consensus that everybody was like, I'll take gold, I'll take gold. And then it became, oh, I'll only take certain gold, right? I'll only take certain gold coins and, and whatnot, which is how, you know, that's how the Rothschilds actually came into power was as gold dealers of different species, right? Different types from di- minted by different countries. Mm-hmm. So we're going back now. And that's why when people talk about, oh, Bitcoin is digital gold, like that's what they're referencing is they're referencing the idea that we're going back to a consensus model. Gold was the money of the people. It still is the money of the people, right? Yeah. There's no barrier to entry for you buying it. There's no barrier to entry for you holding it. That's why a lot of people want to go back to the gold standard, but it's like we don't need to go back. We go forward mm-hmm. in, with the technology. We take what was good from it and we move forward. And it's matriarchal. It's consensus. And I think that to start to have more of these discussions and is to, is to start to understand who we are. And what our history is and what these cycles are. And it's fascinating to me. So, but that's, a, you know, it is, it is a representation. It's perfectly timed. It's a representation mm-hmm. of the times that we're living in. Of course, it's here now. Of course it is. Yeah, yeah. And, and of course, this is the next uh, step along, along the path. Yeah, you know, it's funny. I mean, you talk about, uh, it was interesting to listen to some of your videos on the Ascendant Project because I had never heard the caste system applied mm. to these kinds of historical processes before for those of you listening i mean you can check it out for yourself it's on youtube but i'd heard you know the yuga system the larger yuga system and talk mm-hmm. talking sure. about the divine the the divine mother or the you know the the destructive force of the divine mother the kali yuga that is yep. ending right now and we're going in and in fact all you know, other than the Western calendar, which is based on a linear model, these other cultures had developed these cyclical calendars that were about, you know, how how long it takes our solar system to get around the center of the galaxy. So they were right. they were pretty profound and, and the culture seemed to have an understanding of these larger cycles. And so, you know, the age of Aquarius in the Western model or the Kali Yuga or, you know, the Mayan calendar, um, we're all seeing that. At least according to these guys, there's a, a major shift taking place, right. and the timing to get out of this destructive period and into a more um, 
you know, a more consensus model just to get away from this psychopathic, you know, dominator type culture that we've been a part of and getting into this more consensus based, yep. um, you know, and it's the great irony. You know, I, I, I use yin yang theory a lot. So you see the extreme yang of the culture of the technology that this culture has produced. The, the thing that it was really good at creating this technology now mm -hmm. becomes the very tool that yang becomes yin, um, and it becomes the very tool to bring back this matriarchal consciousness, this consensus-based model. So it's definitely right. very exciting time to be around. And I really, again, appreciated your book for being able to kind of sum Thank all you. of this up for people and, and put it in a way that, you know, people can understand the last three, four hundred years of Western philosophy that has led up to this point and then how the blockchain technology really fits into this whole thing. Um, it was great, great to see. Uh, and uh, I really appreciate the work that you're doing. So if you want to give people maybe some more information about what sure. you are up to right now and your contact information and all that. Sure. So uh, best way to uh, see more about me is just go to vinarmani.com. That's where my weekly show is. You can also purchase the, the book. There's links there. Um, and there are some links as well to our monthly newsletter, which is called Counter Markets, which is a really cool, uh, like, agorist newsletter. But what we get into is we get into a lot of these concepts about, like, how to – basically how to move into this new space that we're entering into. And we're exploring it along with everybody else. I mean, we, we practice what we preach and we, we walk the walk and talk the talk. Um, but my show is Mondays live. It's Mondays at 10 a.m. Pacific time. And uh, it's on YouTube. You can go to youtube.com slash Armani. And then for people who maybe want to get interested in or want to check out cryptocurrency, you can go and check out my new project, which is called Cointext. It's at cointext.io. And it's a very, very simple, probably the easiest way to get your first Bitcoin, actually Bitcoin Cash. It's on the Bitcoin Cash blockchain uh, just through text message. No need to sign up for, uh, for any kind of wallet or anything like that. It's, uh, if you've got a, a phone and you can text message, go check out cointext.io. And uh, and start in, man. Start in on this sort of crypto savage evolution. So that's that's it. <laughs> All right, awesome, Vin. Thanks again. And I just want to remind everyone that if you like what you're hearing on the shift, please think about becoming a patron. That's Patreon.com/backslash/the-shift. Check out my Facebook page at the Shift with Doug McKenty. Join the conversation on Twitter at dmckenty, and my website is www.theshiftnow.com. Uh, you know, again, thanks a lot, Vin. Loved Thank having you. you on the show. I'd, uh, I'd like to keep in touch. I think Let's I'm do, please. Yeah. Great. Yeah. I've loved this Let's conversation. Always nice to talk with a, a, a fellow philosopher that can kind of get into it, um, and understands, you know, the history of Western philosophy like that, because it's a passion of mine. And so whenever I can find somebody else that's into it. And I also, I have a kind of an old pro uh, project that I'm dusting off uh, and I'm going to be doing some editing and hopefully I'll have maybe a book of my own coming out here in the next couple of months. So That would be great. I'd, um, I'd love to read it. Anything you got, send it my way, man. Send it my way. I'll, I'm happy to promote it. Okay. Awesome. I really appreciate that. I'll do that. That's This is going to be the my motivation to get that to get that off the shelf do and it. get it out please, there for the please, people. Please, please, please. Okay, <laughs> great, Finn. You're going to get my book right, out buddy. and you're going to get, uh, you've got me buying cryptocurrency, so. <laughs> Winning. <laughs> yeah, what, Winning. what else can you do? <laughs> All right, thanks, man. Thank you, brother. Really appreciate it. All right, bye-bye. Take care. <laughs>